following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I've been fascinated by and troubled by a question. Often I will preach on this broadcast. I will say things that are very straight. And there will be no response. I will give biblical teaching that is very straight, very logical, no nonsense, and there will be no response. But I will also preach at the National Prayer Chapel, 
and after I have preached a very straight, solid sermon, and the service is over, I find some laughing and talking, not praying, not taking seriously the word that was just spoken, but instead making dinner plans, and off they go, laughing and talking as though nothing had been said. And then many, or some at least, I don't want to overstate, some at least go and participate in their favorite sin, their favorite activity that I will call amusement. And what I've begun to understand is that because we have increasingly become an entertainment culture, there is no connection between the mind of many people and the content of Scripture. There's no way to hook them together because there's something basic missing out of their character. There is no logic. There is no foundation to hook this new information into their heart for behavioral change because they are an entertainment culture. I was with a group of Christian men yesterday for for dinner. And I was fascinated by how quickly and how often the conversation turned to sports. And then the joking and laughing about spending the evening, which game were they going to watch? These men are entertainment junkies. They do what they are supposed to do as husbands. They have performed faithfully the work that they were to do in their jobs, but now, for the most part, retired. Entertainment is what satisfies their heart. I left deeply saddened. And so I decided I would Google entertainment. Let me share with you what I found. It's a noun. It is the action of providing or being provided with amusement or enjoyment. It is pleasure, leisure, recreation, relaxation, fun, enjoyment, interest, diversion, Or, I found this one. This is in dictionary.com. The act of entertaining agreeable occupation for the mind, diversion, amusement. Or, I found this one with the Merriam-Webster. The act of amusing or entertaining. Something that is a form of, of amusement or recreation. The action of providing or being provided with amusement. And then I went to Wikipedia. Let me share what they said. 
Entertainment is a form of activity that holds the attention and interest of an audience or gives pleasure and delight. It can be an idea or a task, but is more likely to be one of the activities or events that have developed over thousands of years, specifically for the purpose of keeping an audience's attention. Although people's attention is held by different things because individuals have different preferences in entertainment, most forms are recognizable and familiar. Storytelling, music, drama, dance, and I would add professional sports. These were supported in royal courts, developed into sophisticated forms, and over time became available to all citizens. And so today we have an entertainment industry that records and sells entertainment products. Entertainment evolves and can be adopted to suit any scale ranging from an individual who chooses a private entertainment from a now enormous array of pre-recorded products to a banquet adapted for two or any size or type of party with appropriate music and dance, you get the idea. It is a diversion. And so the church today has, because they say people's attention span is so short, as one man said to me we love our pastor i said why do you love your pastor he said oh ray it's because our pastor tells these inspiring stories and he only preaches for 15 minutes 20 minutes max if he goes any longer than that we're out we're done So they don't like preaching entertainment too well, but they can stand it if it's story form and inspirational. Make them cry a little and make them laugh a little. Hey, they can handle that kind of entertainment. Well, what it's done, it's turned our brains to mush. It has caused us to lose our ability to think to logic. It has caused us to be incapable of paying attention to serious preaching of the word. But even more seriously, entertainment has prevented us from making solid connections between the reality of our own life and condition and the word of God that is being presented to us because we expect preaching of the word to be entertaining and not instructive in what we should be doing. And if the word becomes too instructive in terms of what we should be doing, we can't connect that with our hearts and with our lives because there's no stable base of theological and practical understanding because most who call themselves Christians are not living out concrete 
principles of abiding in Christ as spoken of in John, the 15th chapter. He says, abide in me. Well, how do you abide in Jesus? And most people will respond to that by saying, I love him. And by that, they don't mean the principle of love. They mean the emotion of love. And so we have these warm, sentimental, gooey feelings. Oh, I love Jesus. Really? How does that translate into your behavior? How does that translate in the way you use your checkbook? Let me take a look at your checkbook for just a minute, and I'll tell you whether you love Jesus or not. Sometimes at the National Prayer Chapel, someone will turn in a check, and it will be like for $124.19. And I say, what is going on? You think you can be that exact in your tithe to Jesus? Do you want him to be that exact with you? The way you measure it out is the way it will be measured to you. I mean, they could have rounded it off to $121 or some round figure. But no, it's right to the penny, so they have done what they were obligated to do. They're like dogs salivating. Maslow's dogs, they ring the bell and automatically they say, okay, I'll do this, 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 this. But there's no thoughtfulness behind it. And there's a disconnect between I love Jesus, which is the warm, gooey, sentimental stuff, and the reality of their actions. Now, I'm very concerned about you who listen to this broadcast because the Lord said to Ezekiel, the people are coming to listen to you because they like your preaching like they like the sound of wonderful music. And so basically, Ezekiel, you're just entertaining my people. You are not changing their hearts. You are not changing their behavior. You're just wonderful entertainment for them. They like to listen to the smooth words flowing over them. The greatest tear of my heart is that this broadcast will just be entertainment for you. But I understand that without some kind of solid foundation... You have no way of hooking what you hear on this broadcast to your life that will bring about a change of behavior and habit. And that's terrifying to me. So I am declaring today an end of entertainment. I'll tell you what will happen. You'll become exceedingly bored you will deal with the end of entertainment like you would deal with going off cocaine. Entertainment is a drug. And most of you listening to this broadcast are drugged. Television is a drug. I discovered that when the Lord told me to shut my television off. And many years ago, I used to go in the living room and sit down in front of my television with it off because the Lord said I had to turn it off. 
and I would look longingly at that television because I wanted to watch the TV. And the Lord said no. So I would go and just sit in front of it because that's where I felt more comfortable. I was going through serious withdrawal from my drug of choice. And television happened to be a socially acceptable drug of choice because it was my entertainment. And finally, the Lord had had enough of my foolishness. And he said, take the television outside and put it in the garbage. Well, frankly, I was very upset because I had paid $1,000 for that television. It was a large screen Sony. It was a beautiful television. The Lord said, take it out and put it in the trash. Well, now it was right there in my face. The Lord was not going to let me sit in front of my television anymore, whether it was on or off. It was trash time. And I took my television out, my beautiful new television, my large screen Sony, and I left it for the trash man. My neighbor came home and he said, Pastor, that's a new television. Does it work? I said, oh, it works fine. He said, can I have it? It's in the trash. You can take whatever's in the trash. And he promptly moved it into his house because he was addicted to the television entertainment. Some of you are addicted to the entertainment of your cell phone. Some of you are addicted to the entertainment of your Wi-Fi and your Internet. Just as surely as someone is addicted to alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, whatever the drug of choice is, it is always an amusement drug. Some of you are addicted to collecting salt shakers or some other foolish thing. And you spend all your time searching after whatever it is you're addicted to. Some of you are addicted to collecting spoons or guns or bicycles or Motorcycles. Some of you have multiple motorcycles sitting in your garage. One man said, Pastor, I've got to sell my motorcycles. I said, what do you mean motorcycles? He said, yeah, I have more than one. I said, does it depend on what your mood is? Which motorcycle you? Yeah, it does. And if the weather's bad, I won't take that one out. He didn't want to take the Harley out in the rain. It's time to end the entertainment because what will happen is then boredom will set in. And as a child, I would become bored and my my father would say to me, Raymond, boredom is a wonderful gift from God. And I'd say, what do you mean, Daddy? And he would say, boredom is the mother of invention. What useful things, Raymond, can you find to do around the house to contribute to the good of our family? I can tell you right now that there are some places in the garden that need hoed out. Well, Daddy, that's work. I want entertainment. 
entertainment does not contribute to the common good. It instead gives us a diversion and it causes our brains to turn to mush. And then when the word of God comes to us, we cannot connect it because there's no there's no solid ground in our heart to connect to. I'm going to say something that some of you will have a very hard time with. And some of you are going to call me an old legalist. I'm not a legalist in any sense. But let me say this to you very bluntly. There is only one way to be righteous before God. And that is by performing righteous deeds. By doing righteous things. Innocent things. Entertainment is not righteous and it is not innocent. Entertainment is not recreation. Recreation means recreation. Recreation is not amusement. It is not entertainment. Recreation is what rebuilds the vital energies of the soul. Recreation is necessary for all of us, and it is enjoyable. Jesus called the disciples to come apart and rest. There's no biblical issue that would teach that we should not engage in recreation. But by definition, recreation must be rebuilding of the vital energies of the body. By no stretch of the imagination are you rebuilding the vital energies of the body by sitting for hours in front of a ball game. That's not rebuilding the vital energies. That's refusing to move. That's being a a couch potato. That's dying, not living. So I need to say some things to you today out of Scripture, and I recognize that by saying these things, you may not have a way to connect them to something solid in your life. But please, I'm going to pray that Jesus will give you something solid to connect it to that will mean a change in your behavior. Almighty God, I too have been an entertainment junkie. And I renounce entertainment now in the name of Jesus. I don't want to mistake entertainment for recreation. I don't want the drugs of this world to block out and cause me to be unable to perform the righteous things you call me and empower me to do. For I know in the final judgment you will report every man and woman for what they have done. What reward will you give the man who sits for hours in front of the television? I'm sure we will not be pleased with that reward, Jesus. So I plead now that you would give my precious brothers and sisters who listen to this broadcast 
something solid in their heart to connect to that can mean a change of behavior on their part. For Lord, I know that we must be revived and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know there are very specific actions that must be taken if this is to take place in our lives. I know it is by prayer. I know it is by fasting. I know it is by reading the word. And I know it is taking the actions that your Holy Spirit tells us to take as we abide in you, Jesus, in very concrete ways. So, Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our mind For, Lord, we have become a totally illogical, ignorant people filled with sentimental fluff. Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Please, please, please. Let your word today connect with something solid in the hearts of the men and women who listen that a behavior change will come upon them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sin is a voluntary action on your part. Sin is a voluntary action on your part. But it is more than just an action. Sin has a twofold nature. First, it is the action that we take. But that action is a manifestation of what is going on inside your heart. That manifestation or that sin flows out of the nature we received from Adam. And that nature hates God. Every human person, if pushed to the extremity, has a natural abiding hatred for God. If you have not come to terms yet with the hatred of your heart toward God, you have not yet been saved. You've just been spray painted with an outer coat of Jesus looking junk, religion, but you've not been saved. Now, it's interesting that in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of a Savior is that God would insert enmity or hatred between the children of Adam and the serpent, Satan. So we have, first of all, a hatred toward God, but we also have a hatred toward Satan. And it's that hatred towards Satan that gives us the opportunity to repent 
Every man, every woman, every child has been given the gift of the ability to repent, recognizing the bitter hatred of God for which God gave us the ability to hate Satan so that we could repent of that hatred toward God. He made a small opening through which we can escape the captivity of the devil. Now, as we participate in entertainment, that small opening becomes tighter and tighter until finally we can't even find the opening. And all we can be is religious. And we become unconscious even of our need to repent. We become unconscious of our hatred toward God because our culture has afforded us a smorgasbord of entertainment to numb us out, to dry us up, so that we can be put in the fire and burned. Everything in our culture is oriented toward drying you out of the Holy Spirit and drawing you out of any real commitment to Jesus Christ so that you can be cast in the fire at the end of time. The devil wants you with him when he's burned, and he intends that you will be burned up. And so now we have to begin to search after that small opening that affords us the opportunity to repent of the manifestations of sin in our hearts and in our lives. Now, we know that sin is an act, but we also know that it's an inner attitude. It is an inner, genetically set up opposition to God. Because Adam produced children after his kind. In other words, donkeys don't give birth to sheep. Dogs don't give birth to cats. Each gives birth after its kind, according to Genesis. That's the order of God. Now, it can be genetically modified by man, but that's not God's will. So we are born after the likeness of Adam and Eve with that wicked hatred of God. But by grace, God afforded us the opportunity of hating Satan. Now, I want to make a very bold statement. Neither the action of sin, nor the nature we were born with, can stand up before the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross has prevailed in behalf of fallen mankind. His blood was shed that sins or sinful acts may be removed, may be forgiven, and that sin or the carnal nature can be totally cleansed. Acts are removed or forgiven. Nature is cleansed. The blood of the cross is completely effective in dealing completely with the sin problem. 
hence the scriptural teaching, be ye therefore perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. And John Wesley said that Christian perfection is in fact simply the total full expression of love. Because by definition, God is love. And so Christian perfection is by definition love. Now we need to understand that. We need to grasp that. And it's very whole it's very hard to grasp what I've just shared if your mind is mush from entertainment. Because you've watched the murders, you've watched all the activities, you've watched so much that most of you are having a hard time separating reality from fantasy. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every conceivable sin, washes us, makes us clean. You find that in the in the book of First John one seven. Now, what I want you to note, that blood is a continuous action. It is a final action. It does it entirely. It cleanses us from every conceivable sin, any sin you can think of, every inclination of a wicked heart. The blood of Jesus deals with Now, the word cleanse in the Greek refers to the total purification or removal of sin. And I want you to note that this is the same word that is used in the Gospels of the lepers who are cleansed. And I refer you to Matthew 8, verse 3, or Mark 1, verse 42, or Luke 4, verse 27. It's the same word. So whether the cleansing of sin or of leprosy, the word means the same thing. So let's take the leper. He's cleansed of his leprosy. Is this a positional cleansing or an actual cleansing? Is the leper cleansed because Jesus said so, but he can't go to the high priest because he still has the leprosy? Or is it in fact that the leprosy is gone? The myth of the modern church is that when we are cleansed from our sin, it is only 
positional. I want to challenge your thinking to understand that cleansing is spatial. What do I mean? There was distance created between the leper's leprosy and the leper so that he was separated from his leprosy. He no longer had the leprosy. He could go to the priest. He could perform the ritual cleansings. The priest could look at his skin. They could touch his skin. It was like new baby skin. It was pure. There was no leprosy there. It was not positional cleansing. Now, the same word, the same word is used in the gospel for cleansing from sin. For the believer, it means that his sin is gone. Every conceivable sin is gone. Now the leper, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, will you heal me? And Jesus says, yes, I will heal you, but you're going to continue to have your leprosy, but it's okay because I want you to leave me and go get a bar of soap and I want you to scrub yourself up and get a wire brush and really go to work on that skin, bloody it up. What? Is that what Jesus said to the leper? No. There was a spatial separation between the healing of the leprosy and the leprosy, and the man was not expected to work hard, to strain and struggle in order the rest of his life to cover up his leprosy. See, a leper had to walk around with his mouth covered. And he had to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And today the modern church wants to say, walk around and say, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. I'm always going to be a sinner. I'm a leper, I'm a leper, I'm always going to have leprosy. But you can be forgiven for your leprosy like I've been forgiven for mine, but you're going to have to live with it until you die. Are you kidding me? This is the mush our minds have become. It's just a sentimental mush. Jesus loves me and I'm his child. I'm his son. I'm part of the family. But I have leprosy. No, if you have leprosy, you can't be a part of the family. You have to live in a separate place away from the family. You're not allowed to enter the family's dwelling lest you contaminate it and infect them with the leprosy. That's why in the early church, they used to have somebody standing at the front door and someone would come to enter the church and they would say, are you a sinner? Or have you repented and been made clean? Oh, I've repented. I'm not walking in sin. Come on in. Do you understand? Can you hook this in to the reality of your mind or is there no way you can grab a hold of this and begin to understand that there must be a supernatural work of grace in your life to transform you into a saint and leave behind being a sinner 
Jesus did not ever call us to be forgiven sinners. He never called the leper to be a forgiven leper to continue in his leprosy. No, when Jesus cleansed the leper, it was a done deal. The leprosy was gone. He could go back to his family. He could go back to his synagogue. He could enter into the temple in Jerusalem and participate in all of the glorious sacrifices that were being offered there. How much more the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from all conceivable sin. And these wicked men who would teach you that grace covers your leprosy. Doesn't heal you. Covers your leprosy. So now you're a leper, but you don't have to cry unclean, unclean, because everybody else is a leper, and you get to all come together as a colony of lepers and praise God together that you've been healed because you've been covered. But you're dying inside and your fingers are falling off. Your face is being eaten away. Your soul is being destroyed because you know you're an alcoholic. Or you know you're a fornicator. Or you know you're a cheater. Or you know you're bitter and angry and hostile. You know you're a thief or a liar. You know you're into pornography. You know what's going on in your inner being. And it's all covered up. And nobody knows. Because I'm saved. And I'm part of the family. The family of lepers. Do you see how utterly insane this is? Either Jesus saves or he does not save. Either Jesus heals and cleanses and removes the sin and makes us into a new creation, or he is not the Savior. By definition, a Savior must save from something. What has Jesus saved you from? The appearance of being a sinner while you are yet a sinner? Come on. God's not going to play those kind of games with you. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the bad news of the wicked reformed teachings. You see why I said this broadcast today is for the end of entertainment. The whole Reformed gospel is just based on entertainment. It's based on leaving you just like you are with a few a few changes to make you cosmetically look better. So as the man I listened to on radio said, there was a bumper sticker and it said, The only difference between you and me is that I'm forgiven. Such ugly arrogance. If the only difference between you and the pagan is that you've been forgiven, you're still a pagan. You've just been vaccinated against the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're still walking in your sin, you're still a leper. 
and you still have to go around saying unclean, unclean, unclean. But you don't have to remain a leper. The blood of Jesus Christ can heal you. So that's why I'm saying the healing of the leper is not positional. It is real. It is precisely the same with the believer. The cleansing from all sin is real. It is a supernatural work of grace. It is not by the human strain. It is not legalism. It is the gift of God. He loves you. Now, in this passage that I've been sharing with you, out of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it makes another statement. Sin is in, and in the Greek there are different cases, and this is what is called the ablative case. It is the case of separation. So if you knew Greek, you would look at the Greek text and immediately you would know that in the ablative, it is talking about separation. The believer is thus cleansed or the sin is removed. So again, this affirms what I've just said, that the relation between the believer and sin is spatial. There is distance. Now, there is also the Greek preposition, apo, A-P-O. It is used only with the ablative case. It's used in this text to help the noun sin affirm vividly and emphatically the cleansing of the believer from all sin. Now, what are you going to do with this? Where are you going to place this in your to-do list? What action will you take on what you have just learned? If you take no action then my words have just been entertainment to you. And I dread being amusement for you. That's my greatest fear. Instead, there is action required. And the action that's required is repentance a turning away from your sin. And we do that by identifying specifically what the sin is of our heart. We acknowledge it in prayer, not silent prayer, but prayer that's prayed aloud. When we pray silently, we get lost in our own feelings. And please, may I just say this as a side note? My feelings are extremely, extremely dangerous and deceptive. 
I liken it to a train. At the head of the train are those big diesel engines or those big steam engines the old timers used to have. I love to stand at a train station and watch a steamer come in. Billowing smoke, those big iron wheels chugging, sparks flying as they apply the brakes. They let the steam off and suddenly you're surrounded in the steam. My dad would often take me down to the train station so I could watch the steam engines come in. Now it's the big diesels. Not so much now, but in days gone past, at the end of the train, there used to be what was called a caboose. The caboose was where there was a potbelly stove, so in the wintertime, it was a warm place of refuge for the workers who were not employed in some activity of moving the train forward. It was also on the long haul a place where the men would go to sleep. There was a cot there where men could lay down and take a nap. It's also the place where there was food. Literally, the caboose was a comfort station. Well, I like to refer to feelings as the comfort station. And the big diesels or the big steamers are what we believe, the principles of reality, the things that we do because we know they're right, the things God calls us to do and believe in. Now, does the caboose lead your life? Or does the steam engine lead your life? If the caboose leads your life, you're not going to go anywhere. You're on a siding somewhere. There's no power in the caboose to take you where you need to go. There's only power in the engine. If Jesus Christ is the engine of your train, he's going to take you right in through the gates of glory. He's going to change your behavior. I remember reading a book many years ago. Taste of New Wine by Keith Miller. It changed the direction of my life for many years because it finally was able to move me from orthodoxy to understanding what my feelings were and letting them be expressed. But that led into the whole movement of the Christian Protestant Church and then into the Catholic Church in what was called relational theology. It had to be feel good. It was the first steps toward the entertainment church. And I had to totally remove myself from that and go back and ask Jesus to be the engine of my life, to move me down the track toward heaven because my feelings were not taking me toward heaven. They were blocking my way. If I let feelings control what I do and where I go and what I say, I will not make progress toward the kingdom of God. I will instead make progress toward the amusing entertainment of the day whether that be the worship service where the music is so wonderful 
or whether it's the theater or the couch potato and the football game or baseball game. Those are all things that are ordered by our feelings. Now, we just have a few minutes left in today's broadcast. I'm asking you to end entertainment in your life. I'm asking you to turn to Jesus and to let him be the engine of your heart and your life. I pray that what I've shared with you today will connect to your actual life and there will be a behavior change. You're listening to Pastor Ray Greenley. I have been giving you Pilgrim's Progress. I'm from the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come visit us. We meet on Tuesday night for prayer at 6.30. 7.30 we begin serious conversation about the journey. You're welcome to come. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church. It's located at 14851 Gideon Drive in Woodbridge, Virginia. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find all the information about how to reach us. God bless you, my brother, my sister, with reality. With reality. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy.